OTB Sports Rugby. I just remember when Stephen Jones was stepping up to take it, I was there going, oh, we've got this. Had they given it to Gavin Henson, I would have been a lot more worried. Um, <laughs> Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Now then, great to have you along, Sunday Papers. Won't be surprised to see that Irish rugby dominates the back pages. The Sun go with French toast. Ireland 32, France 19. Picture Connie Murray, Johnny Sexton hailing him as unbelievable after he helped Ireland claim a stunning win over uh, France. Uh, Sexton lauding Murray. Difficult week, as you might imagine, in a very serious way in the Murray household. A Sunday Mirror. A picture of Conor Murray, this time with Andrew Porter. Yes, we can. Ireland close in on Grand Slam as Sexton Hale's unbelievable number nine. And uh, then we have Pep Guardiola here. Uh, City boss mocks Prem and says, was Gerard Slip our fault? I mean, we, uh, what can we do if Gerard slips? Nothing to do. <laughs> that's, uh, that's one of the great pieces of logic. Uh, Sunday Times go with uh, James Lowe's try and they say touch of luck controversy in Dublin as Lowe's wonder leap helps Ireland to victory over France I think the replays subsequent to the decision being made are conclusive and the try shouldn't have been given suppose controversy maybe doesn't quite reign because Ireland were such emphatic winners although I dare say um, French media sees it somewhat differently and then Liverpool to back Klopp for summer rebuild says Jonathan Northcroft so they're um, about to name a successor to Dr. Ian Graham, who built their data science department, and they're going to spend lots of money, apparently. And Klopp, his mood is uh, to go again, and he's been buoyed by indications he will be given significant resources to overhaul his plane personnel. So that's the Sunday Times. Then we have Sunday World here. Slam dunk, Sexton, brilliant and brave Ireland are in for magical Six Nations. Magnifique is the Mail and Sunday Superb Ireland hand out French lesson in classic. And that is the general refrain across the pages as we'll come to. This was a classic picture there of the team celebrating one of the tries as a group. Have the Sunday Independent. It's that picture. I mean, it isn't, I mean, it may not have been a try, but it's an amazing piece of athleticism on Lowe's part to come so close to scoring a try. Ireland's grand plan. Farrell's men show their best in the world. Sexton Hale's unbelievable Murray as France, our latest side put to the sword and then just to mention it's not really one for discussion on the Sunday Times main section so the front page of the Sunday Times GAA star lied that he had my wife's cancer high profile former player accused of conning targets out of 250,000 euro for bogus stem cell treatment in the US so the um, quote is from a couple a man whose wife was diagnosed with cancer believes he was targeted by a prominent GAA star who claimed he had the same form of the disease and needed money to travel to America for treatment. The high-profile former player is being investigated by Gardee for fraud and deception. This couple in question, who speak on the basis of anonymity, lent the former GAA player €5,000 and they now believe they were targeted because of the wife's life-threatening disease. Uh, there was an empathy and concern in his voice. He told me he had the same cancer as my wife, talked about how he'd received revolutionary treatment in Seattle. We don't believe any of it was true. 
Uh, there are, as you might imagine, a number of alleged uh, victims and uh, detectives are trying to establish whether the suspect was ever given a cancer diagnosis. They do not believe that he has travelled to the United States for treatment. Uh, the piece says the family of the GEA star are reeling from shock. It's understood they were unaware of the Garda investigation. Uh, the piece also quotes people in the man's hometown. They say they haven't seen or heard from him in a number of months. Uh, some have expressed concern for his welfare. I'd be very worried about him, said one man who knew him. If the rumours are true, then something is wrong, another local said. The suspect, by the way, did repay this couple the €5,000 in the end after they threatened to go to the Garda or to contact uh, journalists. And Garda, the piece finishes by saying, confirmed that an inquiry was underway into allegations of fraud in the Eastern Division. Not much more we can say about that. Delighted to welcome to the studio Hugh Farley, Assistant Sports Editor at The Mail, and we have Dion Fanning, Associate Editor at The Currency. Dion, a great weekend for rugby people. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> um, well, it was a great weekend for uh, rugby people. I think that And Irish people. And Irish people. On that nexus, I found myself... Uh, Listening to uh, the BBC, I'll just say the BBC rugby podcast this morning, early in the morning when I couldn't get get back to sleep, and I was getting angry, which is no no help when you're trying to go back to sleep, uh, because they spent so long talking about Scotland Wales, and uh, before they they even got to you know this kind of cursory mention of uh, of the Ireland France game, which was which was was thrilling and. Uh, the first half, especially, I think, was uh, an extraordinary uh, spectacle, even for um, the untrained like like myself. Uh, you could really appreciate what rugby has now, and also those moments, which maybe the Sunday Times, although they've used a picture of the try, those moments of uh, controversy in the game, where you're like, okay. Uh, there are still huge issues and how you actually disentangle the, those huge issues that rugby has from the, the spectacle the hit it, to the herring hedge you mean yeah, 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 yeah from the spectacle it is yes because the spectacle is dependent to such a huge degree on that um, uh, challenge between that encounter between the, the moments like the Hugo Keenan try but those moments of, of of sort of spectacular athleticism and the fact that at any second there is you know uh, a, a physicality to use the the you know a rugby people's word um, that is that is that is overwhelming and that and that again you see it in that like and you you hear it in the crowd when there are challenges that aren't as dangerous as that one but you and then you hear it when it goes to that next level and I thought it was extraordinary even. The, from a dramatic point of view, even, even let us put aside for one second the referee, the referee's decision when Wayne Barnes said he didn't, he wasn't ruling from a high degree of danger, and the crowd are just you know it's, it's gladiatorial, like it's just the crowd are kind of ready to are, are hissing at this thing, but the hit is so mm. it, it's just is is worrying. Yes, we'll come back to that for sure to give people a sense of what the papers are saying. They are effusive yeah. across the board about this Irish performance. I've never seen it so effusive. If Ireland had won the World Cup, it couldn't be more effusive. Really. I mean, we've been like, I remember 2018 when we beat the All Blacks and everyone was talking, this is under Joe Schmidt. And that went 
fairly high level um, joy and euphoria. This is off the charts. Like um, I've been through it all there, and like on the game itself, as Dean alluded to, it, it, it was um, beyond compelling, particularly the first half. Um, but some of the stuff, I mean, um, Roy Curtis called a miraculous sorcery. Um, Bernard Jackman, that's Roy Curtis in the Sunday World. Bernard Jackman in the Sindo, as good a test match as I've ever seen. Um, Brendan Fanning, who's been around since Jackie Kyle was winning Grand Slams, like and, and would be, uh, I know Brendan well, but he he would he would have seen it all. He, his book, um, from there to here, is the definitive book on Irish rugby. It's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Um, but he would be laconic in style generally, and he he was calling it savage stuff. I mean, it was um, incredibly compelling. And David Kelly in the Sindo uh, was probably the most poetic. He said. Uh, Wherever one looked, from the elusive DuPont to the effortless Keenan, from the irrepressible Fiku to the dazzling Peno, wonder stole the heart. You know, which is, you know, nice cadence and all that. But uh, now, you know, we've been here before, um, and the haters, there's enough of them out there in rugby, and they'll say, oh, we're getting ahead of ourselves again. And, you know, you can see where they're coming from. But um, the quality of this performance, it, it's like, how long am I watching rugby now? 40 years. It's the best coach team I've ever seen in an Ireland green jersey. They just look utterly in control of what they're doing. And um, it's, it's, you can see why, I mean, there's a lot of talk about the Aviva Stadium and, you know, people going out for points and all that. That didn't seem to be a factor yesterday. Mm -hmm. that's, that's an atmosphere. No, I, I wasn't there, I was working, but um, it seemed to be all in it together. And, the natural progression, as, as Rory Keane says in the mail, you know, all aboard the hype train, next stop Paris, you know, we have to think about the World Cup. And if you, if you were to introduce a caveat, what, concern, what would concern me slightly is that injury seems to be our best selector at the moment. Um, we're finding out things about Ross Byrne, Jack Crowley, Finley Bealham because of injury. Whereas you wonder, would they be better off getting ahead of it, you know, most people seem to be of the opinion that we go after the, having read all the papers, we focus on the Grand Slam now and go that way. But there's still question marks over this team. For example, Hugo Keenan, if he gets injured, you know, what's our plan B? Gary Ringrose, these kind of questions, which I wouldn't mind seeing answered over the, uh, the remainder of the championship, you know. Uh, Stephen Jones, who I think unfairly, certainly in the years I've been reading him, has a reputation has been somewhat uh, low to praise Irish yeah. rugby. Uh, I think that's an unfair reputation he has. He starts off his piece by saying it was an honour just to be there in any capacity. <laughs> so again, this is not just uh, green eyes, uh, an honour to be there. Two of the best teams of the whole era. He's talking of rugby of late. It was a blistering contest of ambition and skills. What more could you want, especially if you were Irish and you were supporting this skillful powerhouse and knowing team? And then we have Stuart Barnes over the next page. And he, he opens his piece by saying this match was on another level. And he talks about Ireland. The precise positional attacking game doesn't just happen. It's an immense feat of organisational rugby on the part of the management and the players. And he says Ireland have some well-nigh perfect patterns, although he does add nothing to match the individual genius of uh, France. Uh, Peter Riley's very good piece. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of an extra analytical mm. layer to his piece where he is talking about how during the week the French media worried about fatigue and fitness. They had a, 
graph in Midi Olympique to show that only four Irish players, Ringrose, Ryan, Tygburn, Andrew Porter, had played more minutes than their opposite number. And so Galtier is frustrated with uh, the, the fatigue issue. But he points out as well, France kicked the ball uh, far less than they usually do, which he found surprising given the uh, fitness issues. And one last one, seen as I'm just flicking through the yeah. times in front of me. Neil Francis, I mean, he opens the possibility that this was perfection. Perfection is achieved not when there's nothing more to add, but when there is nothing left to take away. See, Joe, this stuff is terrifying, right? I mean... Uh, do you want to know it's terrifying? Uh, no, like Page seven of the Sunday Times. Ireland unhappy with Paris World Cup hotels. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. Reminds me of... Uh, Good God. That, Back we go. To, why can't we get a hotel in this country? Can, I just, can, I, can we just cool the jets here a small? Because I, I'm, I'm in my 50s now. I remember the first World Cup. If we flame out again in September, that's going to be 40 years of World Cup failure. This is different, though. That's, no. I know you're winding me up now. No, no, I think genuinely. The, the, okay, I, four, I accept think that. Think back to, to four years ago, 2019. And the, but and there's the, still questions they to went be answered. Off a cliff. We know what our first choice team is. We're, and and I, love, I love the way Farrell's gone about it. I love the Emerging Ireland Tour. I love the way he's embracing disruption, as he says, so you, you find out things. But what happens if we get to that quarterfinal and we're missing... Ringrose, Keenan, Doris, you know, Josh van der Fleer, World Player I, of the Year. I appreciate who's, that. Who's our backup number seven? We don't know. Is Omani switch up? So I'm getting excited now. Yeah, having said that, by the same token, if France pitch up in a World Cup quarterfinal and they're missing They've Dupont been doing this for four years. And several others. Any team's weakened by injuries. They cleaned the decks after last World Cup when they, when they bombed. Yeah. But and, they, and so, so Antimac goes the down answer, and Jalabert comes in. Yeah, the answer to your question is probably that injury will scupper Ireland as it can other, any other team. That either, like but that it, can happen. So yeah, like, yeah. I don't think anyone can plan for losing four or five players. Well, the system should hold up and I, I would be you know, cautiously optimistic because in 2015 we lost our five players and the system broke down. The, the defence, which had been doing rush all the time, hung back off the RGs and, and they blitzed us. You know, yeah. something broke down. The way this team is coached, you'd like to think that the systems would hold. I mean, certainly the evidence so far would suggest that. Yeah, I'm not sure what you gain from, uh, you know, are you saying you would sort of surrender a Grand Slam? Yes, 100%. Ah, uh, no. 100%. But what we've won the Grand crazy. Slam. We have won but what, the... But no, but hold on like a second. No, no, no. no, no. Would you the I've one? seen enough Six Nations. Two rugby men getting heated here. I Sorry. Who, uh, I'm an all-round sportsman. <laughs> we're, we're getting what, what, we're get, we get caught up in the immediacy of, of success. I don't think, but this I don't think you, what, years do you, of what do you gain from, say, resting, putting, say, leaving Johnny Sexton out to establish something, say, when Ireland play England or when Ireland play Scotland, is what you're suggesting. What do you gain from that um, if, say, Ireland lose and the players, what, what, what is the purpose of it? Okay. What, what do you actually establish I, I by playing, say, yeah. playing a weakened team, losing? Nothing. And like uh, the, the you're, you're saying, right? Well, no, oh my God! Now we're actually we're, we're, we we don't have the uh, yes. the the the, play, the strength and depth that we need, and now we've also lost uh, a, grand a grand slam. And I, I might add, Warren Gatland has more grand slams, or the same number of grand slams as Ireland in Warren Gatland has been to the World Cup semi-final. I appreciate so that. So the Scots, so the Argentinians. I think whatever you nothing matters more than the World Cup. I think whatever happens, Ireland are going to go into the World Cup. Uh, with the pressure of 
what they've done in all their previous World Cups and what they failed to do. True. So there's no way around that, no matter what well, you do. There's a way of future-proofing it. I mean, we, the, the nation discovered Ross Byrne in November when he came to think. Ross Byrne has been there for five years, and this isn't hindsight talking. This has been... Well, the Irish management discovered him. I think yeah. the Irish nation were well aware Ross Byrne was doing yeah, well but, for but no, The media weren't pushing him, only in certain quarters. No, no, that's true. But uh, um, so, so, like, take... Uh, wh- wh- who's the backup to Hugo Keenan? Most likely. Most likely Mac Hansen. Okay. But he's played there for a couple of times for Connacht. We haven't seen him there for Ireland. But I mean, what is one? what we, difference we, is one game for Mac Hansen? We had Rob Kearney. Um, Hugo Keane is exceptional, by the yeah. way. Like, I just think, just on, as an aside, he's like a fella you'd meet for a point. Like, he's like a guy working for AIB who plays a bit of tag rugby on a Tuesday. He doesn't look like this uber athlete. No. He's exceptional. Yeah. Like, he's the best in the world, to my mind. Anyway. So who replaces him? We have a history. We had Rob Kearney for years, who, who was superb, and now Keenan. And we've tried a few in between. We tried Luke Fitzgerald, Jacob Stockdale. It hasn't worked out. We need yeah. to find out. Jordan Larmour. Ke- Jordan Larmour, correct. But one game isn't going to find out much. Well, we have to, what happens if, you know, the, week of, the most important game, arguably in history, is going to be that quarterfinal? Europe against France or New Zealand? Yeah. Do you know? Are we just are we just conceding it now and let's go for the slam? Do you know? Well, I, well, I don't see it. I don't, uh, I don't understand the link between the two. I don't understand why you, if you, if you somehow surrender the Grand Slam, that means, okay, that now we're, now we're sure that Ireland will beat France in that quarterfinal. No, it's a bit late now, I accept that. No, but I don't think there's anything that but you can do about that. I'd love the to know. The quarterfinal ha- in, in the World Cup hasn't been played yet, so there's nothing you can do before it's played to say... There is. You can know for a fact what happens if certain situations arrive. I think France are in a better position now. I don't think France are that despondent to today. Because they know they'll come good in, in later on in the year. Mm. No, I think they, like I, there's huge respect for Ireland. I, mean, that, that I think the thing that's interesting about this, on a, on a, you know, when we get down to it, and again, it, it's, uh, you know, the the the, the 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 extraordinary coverage, and as Hugh says, there are people who will be sceptical of rugby who will be kind of rolling their eyes at this coverage again at this stage, but. There is another thing too that, like, you look at the where where rugby is in every other country in the world, and like the the degree of kind of uh, decay and the way that so many countries are in are you know financially in all different ways they're not in the, they do not have the strength that Ireland do, and it reminds me then we'll we'll talk about horse racing in a different context, but it reminds me a little bit of how we still look at Irish ra- you know, trainers and racehorses going to Cheltenham and we s- celebrate this, you know, as we, you know, now people don't still refer to it as the kind of underdogs. We celebrate it as some kind of miraculous achievement mm. when it is actually just a reflection of the, 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 the wealth and the, and the balance, the financial balance of the sport. And rugby is the same. Irish rugby is... You know, it's a, it's an incredibly well-funded and well-oiled machine yeah. with great advantages um, that are now materialising thanks to, thanks to excellent coaching and to. Yeah. But the but the, the strength and depth is growing all the time because mm. of uh, the the way the way the game is developed in this country and the way you have. Um, and it's going like, to get stronger, Dion. Like yeah, the system well, is incredible at the moment. Yeah, the 20s and, like, and all that. You know, and I saw that. And like somebody was saying this to me about the, the under twenties game. And you see these players who haven't. They're playing like a French team who have got players in, like you know, not the top French teams, but they're playing you know in in. Yeah. And these guys have never played a game, and they're the products of 
schools, that, like the schools and that system, which is incredibly well funded. Yes. Incredibly well funded. Every other sporting association in this country uh, would just like, would be just stunned to be getting this funding from an outside source, which yes. is, a, which is it's a which private venture, private yeah, venture. Yeah. yeah. No, um, it's an, inc- and so it's, like, it's, the, un- it's the, the, the greatest conveyor belt in Irish sport. Yeah. There's no doubt. You're not a Toto Hugh. He's the one. No, hang on, no. He's the one ruining what I thought was going to no, be. No, 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 no. But this don't is, get me wrong. The point about that is, let me just. Think, the point about that is that there are huge advantages that Ireland have that maybe they've never had before, and they will have more of an impact on a World Cup quarter final than. Uh, yeah. Than, no, I'm looking. Than, than don't get me wrong. Do here, right? By like, dropping <laughs> their best players. For I I just like I watched that yesterday and I was blown away by it yeah. and I'm so impressed with Farrell like even the way he's you know it, it was quite fractious I'm a, I'm a big Joe Schmidt fan by the way but I, I was off the beat um, when he took over the Ireland job but it got quite tense with the media and stuff and Farrell's sorted all that mm-hmm. the coaching is, is, is superb I've never seen them play so well the skill levels I mean Doris all props doing the, these passes and all, all that is good I just have this Oh, please God, don't let it happen again, kind of thing. And I just want to do everything possible. I, I could not care less about the Grand Slam compared to getting to a World first. But it could still happen. I'll just say one more thing, Dion, right? If we get to World Cup semi final, you've no idea how big that is. We the win Grand the- Slam is bigger than a World Cup semi final. Okay, you're just, you're just like hopping the ball now. It is. What's a World Cup semi final? Ah, uh, no, that would be pretty big for Irish rugby. 40 years I've been watching this. 40 know, years, and they've been screwing up every time. If you were a player, would you rather win a Grand Slam in Dublin against England or get to a semi-final of a tournament? Well, given Ireland's history of semi-final. I think it's semi-final. It, it will go, be quickly forgotten. It will semi-final. go nuts in this country if you get to work. Yeah, for the three or four days until they go. Uh, no, I think, I think that's. I think a World Cup semi-final okay. would, be, would be bigger. Uh, but I don't think anything. I don't no, think. But let's not sacrifice the Grand Slam, though. No, That's but, still look, a huge achievement. We're beginning to sound like English football here now. Like, let's not sacrifice <laughs> okay, this. As we <laughs> let's win the Grand before. Slam. We we'll see what happens, Grant. <laughs> but sorry, why is winning a Grand Slam going to have a Obviously. negative effect on the World Cup? <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> you just want to play like everyone's okay, third the, choice. The, the ideal scenario weeks. here, right? And I think this is what Farrell is going for, and I, and I, I, I commend him for it. <laughs> is the is the Woodward 3 right? You have your strongest team. Yeah. You play consistently. Momentum. And, and you just nail it down and you win the World Cup, yeah. right? Because this team has never won a Six Nations under Farrell. And if we talk about milestones, beating yeah. Southern Hemisphere opposition, etc., winning a competition, psychological and all that. can you win your first competition as a World Cup? Arguably, that's a difficult but thing England, to do. You look at England, that team, right? Wilkinson was 23 at the time. They'd yeah. Paul Grayson after 50 caps to step up. Yeah. They'd, they'd cover, Mike Cap was there to come in for Greenwood or Tyndall or fullback for Josh Lucy. They'd cover everywhere. Established Ireland, are pretty, four years. Ireland are pretty close to covering every single yeah, position. I know. As I know. close as any team can Maybe realistically I'm too much. get. We're, we're going to cruise it. Yeah. Yeah. You being in you know, a, a state of fear for the next six months isn't going to improve Ireland's chances. I know, I know you feel you have some control over this situation, <laughs> but you don't. <laughs> and the anyway, well the done Grand Sam isn't going to improve Ireland's chances. Can I point out, by the way, I've never seen this before, in the player ratings. Now, the, oh, Sunday, yeah. the Sunday Times give them an 8 out of 10. Sunday Independent give Caelan Doris a... It's got to be. It's a 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10, Caelan Doris. Perfection. I haven't seen one of them since, since Drickle. There you go. A 10 out of 10 for Caelan Doris in the player rating, Sunday Independent. On that Ireland unhappy with a World Cup hotel, I kid you not, uh, seven months out, Ireland are not happy with their Parisian hotel. Now, their main base <laughs> in tour, where they'll um, spend most of their time, is absolutely A-OK. But in terms of a gym in Paris with or sorry, a hotel in Paris with a gym and training facilities and not too far from the Stade de France. They can't seem to get anywhere. The issue is especially sensitive for the RFU given painful memories of France 07. 
And you want something to worry about. Yeah. There you Let's go. Let's not go back to France. Oh, seven. No. Jeepers. Uh, so just to finish, by the way, Neil Francis, and it picks up on the point you made, Dion, uh, he says various things about the performance, a proper test match, no distractions. He said the quality uh, was obvious. Dry ball, serious intent, high level of emotional battlefield intelligence. Just five scrums, uh, he points out. He lists various players. He says the NFL metric of yards after contact contact is one that Doris wins every time. Andrew Porter is one of the best work ethics in the planet. He makes a tackle, then his twin brother makes a tackle a second later. Antonio just can't do that. And uh, he does point to the fact that, you know, France and their bigger men couldn't compete with the intensity of this game as it went on. On to the uh, yellow card that Manny suspect uh, should have been a red. He says, I'm sure Antonio will be cited. But the point here is that there has to be consequences for referee and inconsistency. Wayne Barnes is a very good referee, but he does try and be a little too contrarian in his approach and application. And he makes an interesting observation as well, and I think we've all seen this in rugby matches. Uh, Matthew Carley, the assistant referee on the pitch at the time, agreed with Barnes, but to me, his body language said something different. And Neil Francis writes, the first rule when refereeing teams go out onto the park is that when the referee makes a decision on replay, no matter how ridiculous, they are some way honour bound not to call him out in front of millions of people. And I don't know to what extent Matthew Carley would have felt a pressure to not call out Wayne Burns in front of millions of people. But it does uh, tend to occur to viewers that at times the body language of that assistant suggests he doesn't actually agree with the referee. Again, yet, when, he, when, he, when he made, when Barnes said what he said about yeah. the high degree of danger, there was this sort of... Uh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Show me what you think high degree of danger is because yeah, decapitation yeah. is an option. Uh, Francis does uh, continue, by the way, quite why there was no immediate uh, withdrawal of Herring when it was obvious he wasn't right is a continuing stain on the game. How do they keep getting it wrong when the rules are as clear and concise as they are? I think that... The rules same, are wrong, though. The like, same point applies to George North who went through a couple yeah. of phases before eventually being withdrawn Murrayfields yesterday. That d- There does seem to be a lag for, for some reason. But there's a solution there, Joe. Like... I don't like going after referees and stuff. It's a hard, it's a tough job, you know, and I don't think anyone willfully sets out to get it wrong, obviously. But they brought in this thing in England a couple of weeks ago, which they abandoned the tackle around the, the waist thing, which was madness. The, the rule should be chest height for the armpits down. You bring that rule in, players will have to start lower. So if they slip up, they'll be hitting you here. It, immediately, it's a safer game. Yeah. And they won't do it. I mean, that suggestion's been out there for years. You bring that in. That was horrendous yesterday. We, I mean, we've talked about the euphoria and all that. It got a bit lost because it wasn't the main focus uh, compared to Irish brilliance. But he's an enormous human being, Antonio. He's six foot five, 21 stone, I think. Yeah. Do you know? And, and we saw the slow motion. I mean, this, uh, don't, what about the children? But there's kids watching that. Like, and shoulder going in. I mean, slow motion. You can see his face. It's horrible to watch. I he failed his HIA. The thing that strikes me, again, is, is that the rules are just so... Uh, there are so many things that you're looking for in terms of the rules. Mm. And it, again, it's stuff that you could be arguing in a kind of commercial court, like various different sub clauses. Yeah. And uh, and even with that rule change, I think they changed it in France uh, to something similar, but they also changed what the, the ball carry. I know this, Brett Igo, who writes for the currency, told me this is not my own knowledge. That's great, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but he, you know, they, they also changed the rule for the ball carrier, so you can't kind of turn into a cannon. But like, so there seems to be, like, there are so many rules about something that is so fundamental that it's, it's almost impossible to know how you get to a point where they're, they're easily enforced and properly enforced to protect people. 
And I would I think ultimately you need to look at it again. Sean Keyes, who writes on finance for the currency, but who's always banging on about rugby. And this is his point. Make it a 90 minute game uh, of 13 players and change the physical element. So that actually you you then reward faster, smaller players than the people who, you know, who, you know, again, you see it with France bringing on a whole new forward liner having that potential make it something that actually the lighter quicker players have an advantage thanks to the, the fundamental underpinning mm. of the game and that's the that to me seems like the only way you actually change change the emphasis now whether that would would make it the spectate the spectacle that people love and there is like there is that element that people want that they don't want the, those t- kind of tackles that herring got but they do want the physical Element. They want that exact tackle on Herring a few inches lower, but they yeah. do want that gladiatorial oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. crunch, and they want to watch the slow motion replay of it. Yeah, and they want to watch the but in, into the midriff, not into. Well, the yeah, Gary, Gary, Gary Ringrose on bigger maybe a good example yeah. Yeah. last week. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so to sum up the rugby situation, Hugh Farley aside, <laughs> everything is okay. Bring Hugh back after the first quarter final. We will bring you right back after the quarter final. thing. I'm on my own here. I accept that. How many, as a matter of interest, I take the full back point, and a problem there is that Hugo Keenan has been so consistently uh, brilliant. Mm. And to be fair, Farrell wants to win games and yeah. build momentum. Yeah, that no, it, I get that. Keenan's hard to take out. What other positions? As is Ringrose. As is Ringrose. But you would say at centre we're well stocked, and there's lots of experience there. So Keenan aside, and of course you would like Sexton to be fit. Where else are we, we, we in, 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 in dangerous sleep? We are finding out, but only through injury. Like we found out now that we can live without Gibson Park to a degree. Maybe yeah. not to operate at the same level. Do you think Farrell's logic is, I'm not going to willingly take out players because in a game as physical as this, injury is going to force me to do it along the way anyway? Maybe, I don't know. That's what he seems to be saying. Isn't it's it? working. We, like, yeah. we, we have, we're going to deal with these things. As they come, like, yeah. rather than uh, take Hugo Keenan out of a Six Nations I, just, just as a quick one, I don't want to... Yeah. I'd love to see Ryan Baird involved. He's he's the most exciting forward I've seen come through yeah. ever. I um, remember young Malcolm O'Kelly in the mid-90s, but Baird is an exceptional athlete. France have a guy called Cameron Wokey, who's injured at the moment, yeah. who I believe is probably pound for pound best in the world, and Baird is up there. And he gives you something. Now, you have a Manny there who brings you something kind of almost intangible, like he's got the presence, kind of Paul O'Connell factor. But i just love to see these guys um, before we get to the, the real deal, you know. Um, but look, it's going brilliantly so far, so don't mind me. <laughs> Why do you say that <laughs> <in> such shit? <laughs> don't mind everything I've it's just said. Uh, it's just the length of time, you know. The, I know, the, the World Cup could get, start next week. Look, this is, just, this is just reality. Like how, when, when Fabinho tackled Evan Ferguson <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, uh, it was torture. You, there's nothing you can do about these things. Yet, when something happens, you're like, why... Why or oh why did that have to happen? Well, that's maybe a good and approach. You know, let what happens. Well, thank you. Let that's how I live my life. Whatever the yeah. literary quote is. Really. We'll move on. So I'll try and sum this up as best I can. This is a four-page piece in the Sunday Independent, and it gets uh, you know on the front page of the Sunday Independent, it, it flags that this story is inside. It's Paul Kimmage, and the headline is the trainer, the mayor, and a horror story that shames racing. So this is about animal welfare as opposed to performance enhancing drugs of any kind. So the piece is about a trainer, Homer Scott. 
Homer Scott won a couple of times at Cheltenham back in the late 80s and early 90s. Probably wouldn't be a household name, certainly to anybody with a casual interest in racing at this stage. So Homer Scott is from Antrim. His career started on the Curra in the 1970s. Uh, like I said, a couple of wins at Cheltenham. And he was uh, second in a trainer's championship one year as well. And is now more in the, he's in his 60s now, now more in the breeding territory. He had a horse, Raj, which has proved to be um, popular and, and preempted a segue more so into, into breeding than training. Lishing Stud, 350 acres of rolling fields in, in County Kildare. Lishing Stud is set there, home to, and this is when Michelle Shannon arrived to work at the stud in 2015. She turned full time, arrived shortly before that. So it's uh, set in Kildare, two stallions, 40 broodmares, sprinkling of yearlings, foals and whatever Scott happened to be training. Uh, she said in this piece, and she is interviewed, and there's a photo of her with David Mooney, who's her partner, and David Mooney also has experience at this stud. There's a, a photo of the two of them standing uh, stern face, staring down the camera. And so she says, he only had about two or three at the time. He used to send his better ho- bred horses to be trained by Ger Lyons and Jessica Harrington. So I suppose uh, some of this is upsetting, really. Mm. Um she went full time in 2015. Uh, she talks about imitation. This horse, first of all, who is pregnant, 22 years of age, had a problem with her hips and was starting to creak. I said to him, as in Scott, I think the mare is going to fall tonight. She's looking a bit shook. We'll bring her into the shed and if you give me 100 quid, I'll sit up with her. No, no, he says, you're not bringing her in. I'll keep an eye on her. I went in the following morning and he was like a bear. I should have got you to sit up with her. What had happened basically was and this is Michelle talking, they're born in this bag. Sometimes it breaks or the mare will break it, but Imitation wasn't able to get up and break the bag. She stayed down and the foal suffocated. And the piece goes on, on this same mare, Imitation. Hardly a month had passed since her foal had died and she was about to be covered again. And Michelle was distraught. I said, Homer, you can't do that. The poor mare, she's not going to be able to hold up a stallion. And nothing would do him only to have her covered, though. It turned out exactly as she feared, writes Paul Kimmage, They brought the mare down. I was holding Raj and the minute Raj went to get up on her, she dropped like a fly. He said, we'll give her a few minutes and try again. I lost the plot. You're not going to try her again. I led Raj back and started to cry. The following day, he wanted it done again. Same thing. The mare went straight down. I said, that's it, Homer. But imitation would fall again, writes Paul Kimmage. It was a day later, she says. Homer led out the stallion, got a friend of his to hold the mare. I just refused to do it. This time she went down and didn't get up. She was still in the same spot a day later. The sand ring where we lunge the horses and cover the mares. So he got this guy to call out with one of those mini diggers. They put some ropes around her and dragged her about 80 metres to a stable around the back where no one would see her. Homer wanted her standing or in a standing position. He thought the injury might repair if she wasn't lying down. So they connected her to a sling and they hung her from the roof where she died. Uh, So I mentioned uh, David Mooney, partner of Michelle. He went to... um, get a horse covered at Homer's yard in 2019. Uh, He says, I got the mare covered. I was shocked at the state of the place. Uh, There were over 60 horses and Michelle had to do most of it on her own. Uh, Michelle later on says, if you mention spending money, it was always a no. He had 20 odd horses in each field, wasn't willing to feed them properly. Even during the winter, when there was no grass, all they got was a few oats. I remember there was a horse one day in bad need of a vet and I mean dire need. So I went to him. This horse needs to be put to sleep, Homer. I'm ringing the vet. I'll pay for it out of my own pocket. And he absolutely lost the plot with me. You couldn't talk to him. 
Uh, David then says, it would depress you. The mares were riddled with lice. Obviously weren't wormed. Some of their feet were like donkey's feet. So I bought some worm doses and did them for lice as well. Michelle says, every year we lost horses. There was a mare called Causeway Coast that went to skin and bone in the field. I'd only been there a short time, maybe two or three months, and he brought the mare to the back shed. It was an absolute cruelty case. Hips sticking out, backbone ribs. She lay on her side for three days, groaning and dying. I remember thinking, oh my God. Uh, David says there were at least four mares buried the first year I was there. And on it goes in this um, general tone. The two of them, I think, have been interviewed together because they're in conversation at a certain point. They, as in the horses, they were dropping like flies, said David. What was the one buried up by the hedge? Michelle, thrift. He got her in the summer and she was gone in six months. And then Positano is one in a video. So a video is mentioned. Positano is the one in the video, says Michelle. We brought her into the shed and we're trying to feed her. But she uh, had gone that far that she just uh, died. So the Department of Agriculture get involved and it's uh, obviously a very damning scene that they uh, arrived to see. So uh, five officers, Department of Agriculture, arrive. Uh, at one stage, they chat to Homer and say, look, what we've seen is not good. The condition of the sheds, the horses have died. We were told by the person who reported you that there was a horse lying in the field not so long ago. And there are various um, back and forths there. In the end, the Department of Agriculture uh, issue him uh, with a- an opinion that he's not fit or capable of taking care of the animals and uh, there's a list of things he should do and they have to be done by July 2022, 9am or else. And, and these are just basic animal welfare clauses, you know, the general upkeep of the animals. Uh, it seems that Lynn Hillier, who's with the IHRB, comes out as well. And this is in advance of the deadline to do these um, various things for the horses. And she said, are you aware that your list or whatever the proper name for it is, is due to be done by 9am tomorrow? He said, I am. She said, well, am I going to find that everything is done? Because there's one thing I can see straight away that's not done. Then Homer started to rile up. This is Michelle's account. And Homer started to rile up. I've held a license longer than you're alive. You're not going to take it away from me. (coughs) Michelle, for instance, just to give a sense of things, describes a conversation with Lynn Hillier of the IHRB where, you know, Lynn is on the, the grounds and she asks, for instance, how many mares are in foal? Michelle says, I told her I didn't know because none of them had been scanned. She was horrified. It was June. There could be twins. So we had to box every single one of them to get them scanned. 36 of them. Uh, there are further visits, Department of Agriculture. And in the end, the license is revoked. The point is made in this piece, though, that... Even after she left, Michelle had left, she was getting uh, messages which concerned her about practices. And she put this to Lynn Hillier and said, I'm really upset. Why why has nothing been followed up by yourselves at the Department of Agriculture regarding poor horse welfare? I was told that sheep and horses are dying. Uh, And and Lynn Hillier looks into that. The conclusion of the piece, because it is a dense piece, but it seems at the moment that the IH or B, that's Lynn Hillier, uh, they have sur- they have secured the surrendering surrendering of Mr. Scott's trainer's license. Therefore, he can't act in that capacity, and therefore they feel that's their duty served. And it's up to the Department of Agriculture now to ensure that the sixty or the fifty or so horses uh, still on that land are being looked after. So that's the Department of Agriculture, who it seems have paid visits, but it's it's not entirely clear where they are with it because they can't comment on ongoing investigations. And 
that is the end of the piece. Now, I should stress as a final point, and sorry, I know I've, I've gone on a bit here. On Thursday, Homer Scott spoke to the Sunday Independent and he said, I'm the best man in Kildare to look after horses. And he said, imitation, that's one of the horses that was left um, and, and out in a field for far too long, allegedly. Imitation had been uh, put down and taken away by Moyle Animal Collection. And Ned Dean of that company confirmed he had disposed of some animals for Scott, but had no recollection of imitation. And then the video of uh, Positano Princess lying in field dead. Homer Scott said, I don't know. Why are people saying bad things about me? Like, I mean, my horses are all well fed and they're all well looked after. He added, I didn't do anything bad to my animals. All I do is look after them as best I can, says Homer Scott. Paul Kimmage, you don't bury horses on your land. Scott says, I certainly do not. I buried a few horses until about three years ago, a couple of horses on the land, and they told me not to do it again, and I didn't. Paul says, so the video is false. Homer Scott, so sorry, what video is that? And Paul says, the video of the dead horse that was buried on your land, January 22. Scott says, I don't know. Is there many people, or is there many people burying horses on land? Paul says, I've no idea. I'm asking about your land and what you do. And Scott says, no, I don't bury any horses. I had a horse died this week and the people came and looked at it yesterday. And like I said, Department of Agriculture say they don't comment in relation to ongoing investigations, but uh, the training licence certainly has been revoked. That's about as good a job as you can do to sum up a piece uh, this long. And again, we should emphasise Homer Scott says nobody better to look after horses than me. And Michelle Shannon and David Mooney here are very much on the record with Paul Kimmage. And there is no doubt that the training licence has been revoked by the IHRB as to where the Department of Agriculture are with the horses still on that land we don't exactly know it's an upsetting piece to read uh, first off I think that was the I asked you outside you mm. and you said it's just upsetting to read yeah particularly that piece you read out about imitation um, could I just talk about Kimmage first if you don't mind um, with a newspaper hat on um, like we're in an era for newspapers of like dwindling resources and journalism and this is like old school you know, Spotlight, I don't know if you know that film, where you kind of put someone on special ops for a time. Yeah, and it's very important. And, like, I've been a fan of Kimmage's since A Rough Ride, the book he did about his cycling career. And who am I to, you know, nitpick Paul Kimmage, given what he's done in his career. But I, I wouldn't be a massive fan of the, the Q&A, Rory McIlroy stuff. Not into golf, and I, I don't like that style, because I think he's an, an exceptional writer. Like, he... Oh. Um, when you start in the game, I remember being told, tell it simple, tell it straight, and he's a style of writing that brings you along. And this is a, and I, and these are the type of pieces that I really think he's made for, you know. Um, it's a lot to it, as you said, it's dense. It is upsetting, and, you know, there's obviously legal implications and all that. It, 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 once again, it throws an unsavoury spotlight on racing, which, you know, I, I, I don't know enough about racing, but I, uh, my own opinion of racing is, 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 I think it's a business, not a sport. It, it, it irritates me around Cheltenham, particularly when it's like painted out to be this, what do they call it, the sport of kings, Dion, is it? Mm -hmm. You know, this kind of, you know, mythical, you know, wonderment. And I always, I always note when a famous horse dies, like a best mate or an imperial <coughs> call, the eulogies are almost talk about it like it was a person, you know, like, you know, what, he had a great personality every day, he'd greet you with it, whatever. But what about the horses that don't make money? You know, where do they go? Like, is it just a bullet to the, or however they do it, behind the sheds, you know? And there's a deep cynicism at the heart of racing, and I think Paul Kimmage has um, thrown the spotlight on it, as I said, and 
this this is a there's a lot in this piece and it, and it's upsetting and if this is you know one example of what's going on how far does it go like I mean when when did Gordon Elliot that that image of the horse and stuff it's just I don't know do we just in, accept in fairness it? to Elliot. Uh, he was absolutely adamant and those in his yard adamant that that horse was perfectly optics, well cared know? for. Yeah. But the optics, as you say, are and difficult. But can, do we have to turn a blind eye because of the amount of revenue it generates? Do you know, I mean, it's a huge industry and it is an industry. I mean, there's a, a kind of a half tongue in cheek attitude in newspapers that the race card should be the business pages, do you know? like. But I know one thing is that if you make a mistake on the results or a race card, you, the phones are hopping. Do you know that there's people who are as part of their routine and all that. It's um, it's a very big issue, and I don't know where it goes, Joe. Do you? Know I mean, does racing respond to this, or is this just you yeah. know the way the business is done? I don't know. Uh, there's one last very brief uh, mention because I referenced a video. So Positano is a horse, mm. and this again, this is David and Michelle. And Michelle says, Positano was the one in the video. We brought her into the shed. We were trying to feed her, but she'd gone that far. She just died. So we pulled her out with the tractor. We left her outside the back of the yard. I said to Homer, you may get the knacker up to take her away, but he didn't want to spend the money. No, I'll get her buried. A few days later, she was still there beginning to rot. So David said, I'll pull her out to the field or she'll disintegrate. So we pulled her into the field. She was there for 10 days. David says, you forgot to mention Michelle. Yes, sorry. The person Homer used to bury the horses, I don't want to mention his name, he decided he'd had enough, he refused to do it. Now you can imagine the stench, it was absolutely disgusting. The dogs were up there every day and coming back stinking. I lost it with Homer, he said, right, I'll ring someone else. We had to cover the mare every day to keep the dogs from her, it was desperate. Take a video, David said, and turn it 360 degrees so he can't deny it's his place. See, I, yeah, like it is, it is harrowing and upsetting. And I think one of the points in the piece is that like, uh, that you know the the people um, uh, Michelle Shannon and David Mooney, <coughs> Michelle Shannon in particular, David Mooney. You know, there's a line in it. There's a lot of horsiness in David Mooney, but he's not sure it's in the genes. Um, and they are they are horse people, as you know. And, and Kimmage quotes the the Simon Barnes uh, book. Horses can't, you know, Simon Barnes is a, a writer for the London Times who's a big horse person. Mm. Uh, he says, horses can't do without humans, and then humans, some humans, really can't do without horses. And I suppose horses can't can do without humans, though, can't they? Well, yeah, that, let's, we can come back to that. Mm. Um, but I think the point is that these are people who are, you know, and we see it at Cheltenham and see it at those racehorses we all watch, you know, you'll see the, the, the people who work in the stables and love the horses and, and care deeply for the horses and the and the people and uh, Michelle Shannon would be would be in that vein she would be somebody who cares deeply about horses. and I suppose in some ways that is uh, the counterpoint to what's going on in this yard and what you might you know what you might think is going on in racing as a whole um, but it doesn't take away from how harrowing it is and I guess the, the other point about this and I, I know you use the, the phrase that his license had been revoked, but like that ha that has happened. But again, it is said that uh, the the IHRB statement to the Sunday Independent said uh, a summary of the findings from the inspection was provided to Mr. Scott. After which the IHRB secured the surrendering 
of Mr. Scott's trainer's license. And earlier, uh, Kimmich said by the end of July, Homer Scott had quietly surrendered yeah. his trainer's license. So no record of any sanction. No record, of any, and this is contrasted through the piece with what happened to Stephen Mann, uh, who was. Uh, so he had he was he was he had a four year ban following a hearing it was the longest ever imposed on a trainer and Stephen Mann as people who have followed Kimmage's reporting on horse racing is somebody who talked to Kimmage about the you know horse racing and what's going on or what may be going on in horse racing previously so there's an awful lot of stuff and there's a lot of density in it yeah. And it is it is it is shocking, and I think and I think when you you know, we talked about this, I think Joe after on on this show after Cheltenham when we talked about how that that sense of a sport where that is running out that is go, is now out of out of step with with mm. the kind of the popular mood yeah. increasingly yeah. you know and I think we talked about it in terms of how Cheltenham needed a kind of quiet Cheltenham at the time, and you see it like it it becomes. Um, it is increasingly to to a lot of a lot of people. It's just it's just it is the idea that you would have a sporting event where horses may or may not die mm. uh, uh, during it is just is just alien to so many yeah. people. And then you go down into into this this level of cruelty. Yeah, and I think it's it's a huge issue. For, for race. I, 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 there is just one point I want to mention because I, I don't think I made it clear and I think the Department of Agriculture may have to be more th- forthcoming here. So Arthur O'Connor with the department, he was the one who issued you know, the concern that you're not capable of taking care of horses and, and by July, 1st of July 2022, you have to have all the following done and all the following are things like all horses' feet examined by a farrier, uh, microchipping of horses, reduce the number of mares being kept, ensure that all horses that die are removed to a registered knackery within 48 hours of dying, you know, clean the stables, all that kind of stuff. So all this, all this list. And, and there is a point made here just towards the end. We sent an email to Arthur O'Connor with a series of questions. He's at the department, including why officials hadn't revisited the yard by that deadline of July 1st. Why hadn't they revisited the yard? And the response you get is, we don't comment in relation to ongoing investigations. Mm. Now, given the amount of money that is given to horse racing generally, I think the department may have to start commenting on mm. questions like that, specific questions like that. And, and OK, they say it's an ongoing investigation. Let's hope when the investigation concludes. What, what, what's the delay in well, the see, investigation d- concluding? H- Hugh talks about how it's a hugely, uh, it's a big industry and whether, you know, race cards whatever should be on the, on mm. the business page. It's also an incredibly well-funded industry by Irish people, mm. uh, like through the, through the betting levy, which is something that the Roy Barrett at the FAI had something to say about recently. But like the money that comes from that, all eighty percent of it goes goes to horse racing, twenty percent goes to greyhounds, which is another uh, conversation. Um, Pascal Land talked about that today. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. two seconds. Yeah, but but it is again. So it isn't just a question of like, God, this is we are you know we are this uh, we are this gloriously successful miracle workers producing this uh, indigenous uh, um, ground you know from the ground up industry. It is incredibly well well funded um, by 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 the, by the betting levy. Mm. Um, and you know, it, now it's 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 through gambling, 
and there are questions about that. And I think you know it's an it's an interesting topic that Roy Barrett start you know started a debate over. And I actually have noticed a few pieces in the racing pages of newspapers since talking about how racing better you know maybe shouldn't be taking this money for granted anymore. Yeah. Uh, but it is something that, as you say, like this is this is a well funded industry, and people need to provide answers. Um, all the way through it. As a broader point, doesn't it just make you consider our relationship with animals mm. generally? I mean, we industrialise them. Like, uh, Horses any of us, people, when we that the quote? I mean, buy our food in the local shop and we take the meat from the fridge, if you were to stop any of us, as we do it so carelessly, and, we, and, and to say, would you bet your life savings that this animal was treated well from start to finish? Yeah. I don't think any of us would. And I think we just keep that we, we away from it. the back of our minds. And, you know, it's we've like seen videos of not so much in Ireland, but abattoirs around the world. And it's truly horrific. Any of us who had, a, you know, saw farms growing up, yeah. I did. You see young separated from mothers and the wailing that follows. Don't tell me they don't have feelings. We, we deal with it in different ways, Joe. Like I, I would eat chicken Kievs now as opposed to actually looking at the bones and stuff, you know, because I don't want to visualise it, you know, the animal. Yeah, but isn't <laughs> that such a cop-out? Yeah, it's a complete cop-out. Yeah. I don't want to know. These you know? are the mental gymnastics we all perform. Yeah. Um, Would any of us kill an animal to eat it that night? A lot of us, a lot of us wouldn't. But again, that is, you know, there is people, like that. That's, that is changing and that is evolving, especially among younger people. Mm. It's becoming something that more and more people are, are less inclined to do and there's you know and it, like when you get into broader issues to do with climate and everything it's yeah. like how sustainable is that and it actually it's something that's you know Eamon Sweeney has a really fascinating piece on yeah, forcing yeah. Sunny Independent which kind of gets into that you know it's like uh, you know and it, again the, the paradoxes and counterintuitive stuff about coursing where he ends it by saying you know he said there were protests at that these, these meetings very very small and uh, Coursing, yeah, we're coursing to be banned. The biggest victims might be not by the sports fans, but the Irish hair population. Yeah, the survey carried out by Neil Reid found hair population density to be 18 times greater in the conservation areas administered by the coursing clubs than elsewhere. Yeah, the netting of hairs for coursing caused an annual death rate of just 0.1 percent. And as he makes he makes a point earlier, the attitude may seem contradictory for someone in watching an event which involves the pursuit of hairs, but it probably reflects. So he's talking about somebody at the, uh, at the event who's urging on, cheering on the hair. To get away. To get away. Yeah. Go on, go on hair, go on hair. Uh, but it probably reflects, that attitude may seem contradictory, but probably reflects coursing's roots in the agricultural community. Yeah. After all, farmers take good care of and sometimes feel affection for animals destined to be killed. Yeah. <clears throat> and any of us who know anyone who works or lives or uh, ha- runs, has a farm will be aware of that. Like there is a deep affection for you know the, the animals stock, and yeah. the people care for animals. This is to take it away from the the uh, the Kimmage piece. Like there is a but there is also a reality about it's there is there is a purpose to this. It's, yeah. it's probably important to point out via, via the Kimmage piece that that's not reflective of, of everyone across the industry. You know, I'm sure there's no, I, yeah. I, I would genuinely think it is a tiny Minority, yeah, and there are bad actors on every stage. And actually, what the piece also shows is an incredible love of animals yeah. on Michelle's part mm, and yeah. David's part. Yeah, you know, here are two people heartbroken yeah. at seeing 
some of the behaviour. And I think the industry in many respects is populated by those people who love animals and, and therefore get into the industry. But the, 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 the point you made about, you know, our, our, our relationship with animals, I mean, I think the Sweeney piece, I think I agree with Diana, it was very interesting. He sets it all out, and, but lets you make your mind up. Yeah, he starts, what a great opening. This is a column on coursing. It's not for it and it's not against it. It's just about it. Now, I, I believe the history of coursing, it was savage. I mean, there was no muzzles and all that. Until 93. But, but, I, I, but then you could stand back and say, I wouldn't say it's a, a bundle of laughs with the hair being chased. You know, I wouldn't say it's great for the no, heart terrified. rate. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, coming from my cosseted city existence, is this a, the way it is in the country? Do you know, I mean, is it accepted? Is it better now than it was? The point about the, the population is interesting that Dion raised. Um, On um, racing generally, because I, I, I'm getting a sense from you that you, you feel there's a mood uh, bubbling away and yeah. that the general public and racing are out of step. So Pat Spillane uh, ultimately gets around to GA, but he does start by saying how the GA gets kicked around a lot. But actually, we're far too self-critical. I focus way too much on negatives. And he says, uh, one thing I know for sure, there's no danger of horse racing being subjected to the same kind of forensic scrutiny GA faces. And he talks about the two-day Dublin Racing Festival. Uh, Two million euro was handed out in prize money. But he makes the point, only the elite benefited. Uh, So, for instance, he says, one day, for example, Willie Mullins had four runners out of seven in one race, five out of eight in another, six out of eight in in another. Day two wasn't a whole pile better, he says. In other races, he had uh, three out of seven, two out of five, two out of six. Seven of the eight winners on day two, seven of the eight winners were trained by either Mullins or Gordon Elliott. It's a bit like Dublin and Kerry being allowed to enter multiple teams in All-Ireland. And he does make the point that racehorse owners don't have to pay tax on prize money. You couldn't make it up. The Irish taxpayers handing over soft money to millionaires, billionaires and Arab sheikhs. And just a reference back to the Kimmich piece, an aspect of that story is it is the tale of the struggling small time trainer where money is tight and corners mm. are allegedly cut. 42 million though, Joe, is, is the figure he quotes. Yeah. And uh, taxpayer money. He goes on to say, at a time when there's a cost of living crisis, etc., horse racing Ireland is funded by the government to the tune of 72 million. Greyhound industry receives 18 million. This level of government funding is unjust, immoral and wrong on every count. Maybe I'll lay off the GEA for the next few months. <laughs> well, that's that again, that is the, and this is, this is interesting in terms of um, what Roy Barrett came out and said a few weeks ago and Pat Spillane is picking that up and there is a, a little bit of a moral conundrum there because what they're looking for is gambling money and the FAI's argument is that you know the money that people are betting isn't going on horse racing anymore it's going on football now I interviewed Colin O'Gara last week and you know he's talking about now it's a separate fund but he's talking about the social impact fund that's part of the new gambling bill and that's going to come from the betting industry too um he's now getting he's getting militant in the terms of like he's saying i was saying it was one percent now i'm saying let's price up how much gambling what money we need in this country to combat to deal with the problem of gambling that we have in this country let's price that up first let's get that price and then we'll and then we'll work backwards from there and get, take that money from the betting industry. Um, now the FAI want this money, which is the betting levy, to be distributed. I'd say the GAA do as well. I, um, 
the prize money for that festival is is interesting. Because again, that was something I was noticing since Roy Barrett has has you know made his remarks that this was again mentioned as something they're talking about the benefit to the economy of this of this racing festival. But again, it's being funded through the government, but through what people bet on, and all the money that people are betting on is going to horse racing. When we know being just factual and taking, removing a moral stance for a second, that that is not the way people bet anymore. That that is not whatever the breakdown is. And, and I think the figures in the UK are, are about 40% for something like football. Mm. I would be amazed if it's, you know, even, you know, I'd say between everything in Ireland, it's, you know, racing is probably a now uh, a minority of of you know of, of betting of, of betting are are no more no more than fifty percent I would imagine, but who knows anyway? Who knows but, 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 but not, no other sport that. is defined by betting to the same extent. Well, no, that's what I mean. But that's 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 a different that's a that's a different point. The point is that they're getting this money, yeah. and um, as Pat Spillane says, they're using it to fund this thing, which we then su- celebrate as a success story. And when Cheltenham comes along. We'll be talking about it still to a degree in that historic terms of little old Ireland going over there and taking on uh, mighty England, mighty yeah, England yeah. when we are the supercharged. Yeah. We are the, we are the Manchester City Ar- in this in Irish this, uh, uh, Irish prize money dwarfs. English yeah, prize money. we are the we are the supercharged uh, state funded uh entity in yeah. this in this or in this scenario. So as a final thought on all of this then Hugh, what does a, a story like this in national newspaper prompt over the next few days? <sighs> Wasn't was didn't Paul Kimmage write about Jim Bolger a while back and it seemed to fizzle out as well. I, I just think he should be commended for this piece. It's a it's a serious piece of work and it's it's very important. And going back to the point you raised about the ongoing investigation, you'd hope something happens on the back of it. Yeah, you hope, hopefully it gets picked up on now by by other media outlets and and maybe you know taken taken further. Yeah, but well, it, it's Kimmage it, deserves to be commended for this. Uh, well, like I said, it's it's in the Sunday Independent again. Uh, Scott denies any wrongdoing, and we'll see where the ongoing, as the Department of Agriculture call it, investigation goes. There, uh, we're going to have to race through some pieces because we kind of. Uh, clocks against us t- taking our merry time thus far uh, really interesting piece if you're watching the Super Bowl this evening I'm sure it won't escape your attention and Mark Gallagher um, uh, writes about it really well here across two pages in the Mail on Sunday he says in this day and age this should not be a big deal but the magnitude of Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts taking to the field for Super Bowl tonight as the first two black starting quarterbacks to face each other in American sports showpiece game is likely to resonate for some time and uh, he quotes uh, Lewis Moore, who's a, an associate professor of history at Grand Valley State University. This is a hugely significant moment for sport. Uh, Mahomes and Hertz, writes Mark, uh, take the field 35 years after Doug Williams became the first black quarterback to play in and win a Super Bowl. Uh, only six more black quarterbacks have started in the Super Bowl. Only six more in those 35 uh, years. Uh, of the playing populace, 71% in the NFL are uh, of colour. And yet, despite those figures, only 11 of the 32 NFL franchises had a, had a starting black quarterback this season, which was in itself a record. And, and traditionally, as, as Moore says, black players weren't considered smart enough to be quarterback. It was said they couldn't learn off the plays and 
uh, could only run. All these things were leveraged at uh, black players. So in Mahomes, you have a generational talent who will go down as one of the great players. And then at 24, uh, Hertz is younger by three years. His story reflects, writes Mark Gallagher, the long-standing stereotyping that goes on against black quarterbacks. He was benched during his college career and he was advised to find another position if he wanted to be drafted, but he persevered and he is where he is now. And uh, Moore, who's quoted earlier, says uh, his story just reflects the history of the black quarterback. That sort of attitude still exists out there. And another point is made later on. He says quarterbacks are the face of the franchise and too many white owners don't want that to be a black man. Broader context, 20 years since the Rooney Rule brought in and yet in 2023 only three of 32 head coaches are African-American and uh, the Rooney Rule means well but it's clearly not getting desired results. Colin Kaepernick is mentioned as well. You know, the the, the, uh, effective ending of his career for taking a stand and uh, Mahomes himself so the player himself Mahomes has referenced the history being made tonight he said it's special there are so many great ones that haven't been recognised because of the stereotype of the black quarterback not being able to have sustained success I'm glad I'm able to be on the world stage with another quarterback in Jalen that's able to play at such a high level Uh, great piece really interesting yeah when Mark said he was going to do it I was delighted because he really gets you know he made the phone calls he got the whole sense of what was going on and I, I'm, I don't follow the NFL but I'll, I'll watch this game tonight now after reading this you know which is testament to the job he did in it I mean that statement about they weren't considered smart enough is like mm, yeah I mean and when you look at uh, you know if you're careful here but when you look at uh, American history with slavery and stuff the notion of you know the white guy calling the shots to the you know while, while it's it just it, it's the optics are terrible again but and the, the one that jumped out here as well um quote from tyra taylor when he was a quarterback for the bills it's always going to be twice as hard just because of who i am an african-american quarterback look across the league we were held to a certain standard we almost have to be perfect i mean it's just you know the race ish racism is 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 so um even in Ireland now, with, uh, you know, the stuff that's going on with the, the protests and stuff, there's this bubbling thing going on. And the most encouraging thing in Irish sport at the moment is, is you know, it's been dubbed the New Ireland, you know, the Adelecki or Befemi, it's brilliant. And you, you read something like this and, and it, you know, we, can't, we can never take this stuff for granted, yeah. you know. We can't, like, this, 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 you know, maybe we can't relate to it because we haven't experienced it but it's important that we know about and actually you know you're, you're right to mention the situation here and no more than the Super Bowl tonight on a, on a, on a grander scale obviously but like, like watching the Republic of Ireland and watching mm. these brilliant new athletes it's one of these few sport provides one of the few arenas which showcases yeah. Ireland at its multicultural best and that's very very important because I certainly don't Huge. see it I don't see it in the doll. I don't see it in, in corporate life. Yeah, I mean, sport point. is actually one of the few areas. The role where we're models for the generations yeah, coming yeah, yeah. up. You Music know, it, it's massive. Yeah. No, it's uh, no, it's a really interesting piece. Um, I hadn't realised actually. Did, you know, no. first time two black quarterbacks yeah. in the Super yeah. Bowl. Still won't make me watch the Super Bowl. No, That's fair enough. too late. You're a rugby man now. After all, <laughs> it's just too late. It's just like, I'm a man who likes to go to bed. Rihanna, the halftime show. Was, yeah, no. so Rihanna. Apparently, sorry, not apparently. Yes, yeah, it is. Last year, <laughs> well, that, last year's show was brilliant. Now they won't top that. Remind me, last year's show, Snoop Dogg, the coolest man on the planet. Oh, and, and Eminem. Eminem. Yeah, 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 yeah. Rings a vague bell. Oh, jeez, watched it a million times. Right, um, we are massively um, done with the kids against the uh, clock. 
Declan Lynch was writing about the Man City situation, Dion. You picked that out. This is in the main section of the Sunday yeah, Independent. Um, what, what's our take on this a few days on after the, the shock of, of Monday's... Well, um, I, it's an extraordinary story and I find it's ex- incredible that in the Sunday Times sports section there isn't anything as far as I went through it twice. No, there's there's it. not much across the board, I would say. I think fatigue has already set in. Well, you see, the <laughs> parallel then with other... Uh, and you need to be a little bit careful here, but the other, other things that people are charged with, with that people don't uh, are, are accused of, that people don't really feel there's any great interest in, um, is kind of interesting. But this is an extraordinary story. Pep Guardiola's uh, comical press conference. Um, I didn't see it all, so what was the gist? Well, the general sense of <coughs> persecution, the idea that this has been driven by Premier League, the CEOs... Uh, he name checked. Uh, he name checked Daniel Levy, um, which I'd say went down well. Why did he uh, well, because it's one of the prim- you know this was the idea that oh, they, they were okay. being th- and there was an envy and the clubs that had written you know clubs had written to the UEFA when they were charged before they were found innocent. Then they were actually found to say they were found innocent yes. is is stretching it. Uh, they still received after they went to the court of arbitration of sport. They still received a, a, a ten million ban. A 10 million fine, reduced from 30 million. Yeah. UEFA said that the, some of the charges weren't proven, that the others were, or Cass said some of them weren't proven, others were time barred. But they never really said, Manchester City, you've been doing nothing wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and before I get to Declan Lynch's piece, it is worth noting what uh, Rob Draper piece in the mail, he says, uh, and this is just you know important because it comes back to Guardiola's point, which I think he, the stuff he came out to say about Stephen Gerrard and the slip, and this kind of stuff, you know, we didn't make Steven Gerrard slip. Um, well, you were there. You were the team that was ready to capitalise on it. Guardiola wasn't manager there, but you were the team that was ready to capitalise on it. And he mentioned Paul Dickov and Mike Summerby. Paul Dickov is an interesting one because if Manchester City didn't have the money that they do have, they wouldn't be in the position they are. Now that is a slightly separate point to what they've done with these charges. But if you're if you're trying to argue that money has had no bearing Mm. on where Manchester City are and has no bearing on them being in a position where they can capitalise or win the league by one point or whatever, then that is a ludicrous argument, which is basically what Guardiola is saying. But it's worth pointing out then, just to, I have this on my phone, that Rob Draper just mentioned, the Premier League have charged City with a variety of offences, such as, according to German magazine Der Spiegel, awarding Roberto Mancini two contracts, one which saw him paid 1.45 million by City and a separate 1.75 million consultancy from Al Jazeera FC in Abu Dhabi and selling off players' image rights to a mysterious company, Fordham, Fordham Sports Image Rights, which Spiegel claims eventually led back via Family Trust and a British Virgin Islands company to funding from Sheikh Mansour, the owner of City and Deputy Prime Minister of the United Arab Emirates. But most of the charges relate to what would effectively be, effectively be false accounting. So this is, and I think Miguel Delaney made this in a piece this week, this isn't to do with just financial fair play. It's to do, the allegations are actually of fraud. Yeah. I was wondering, by the way, as an aside, and you may have seen this if you watched the press conference, would Pep have been asked on the record, can you absolutely confirm that your payment comes from Manchester City alone? Are there any other contracts? <laughs> yeah. Now, you would get a look from him, mm. but I it would be a legitimate question under the circumstances. It would be, but he's, he, 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 do, he does a very good line in, in moral outrage. He does all right, yeah. Uh, and Affronted. 
affronted. Um, and that's fine, but we've seen people do good lines in moral outrage, and I won't mention who they are, but there's been plenty of people who've done good lines in moral outrage over the years mm. in sport, and it hasn't meant anything. Mm. And Dion, can I ask a possibly naive question? How do Man City fans feel about it? Because when you say Paul Dickoff, right, wasn't there Sean Golter and these lads mm. and Tony Grealish and Niall Quinn, and it was kind of romantic. Do you know what they Man all United say? Shadow. Are, are they what, do you know what they all say? It's, re them? it's really interesting. They, a, a lot, one of the common refrains is financial fair play is a sham, as in when we arrived on the scene with our money, then suddenly you put in place financial fair play to pull up the drawbridge so that the established teams would always be ahead of us. And I, I'm sure they understand in some of maybe a few Are done by. maybe a few uh, lines were crossed here and there, maybe a, a touch. But I mean, come on, such is life. That's that's what I think is the that is attitude. that is and that's an argument made by certain people uh, this week as well. But the the counter argument to that is they are the rules, you know. Oh, like, don't be so naive. Like as in you know, like as in any like, you know, you could you could watch a game of rugby and say, well, why are you playing with this ridiculous rule that you have to throw the ball backwards? Yeah. They are the rules. You signed up to the rule. And this is what I mean. This is why the point is that when it's, it's not then, oh, God, these, oh, we've been caught, we've, we've been slightly done on a technicality here. The, uh, the allegation is a false accounting. Mm -hmm. So it's much more serious than that. Um, time is against us. What's the gist of... Well, Declan Lynch's point is that this is an extraordinary thing to have happened. Yeah at all. Yeah. Uh, he says the, the Premier League has no morals as such yet there's a kind of inverted moral dimension to this. The inalienable right claimed by the oligarchs and other acerbly rich entities to do whatever the hell they want unhindered by petty regulations. It is the most powerful moral energy of our time. This perverse sense of self-righteousness on the part of the super rich. This entitlement to own everything worth having in this world from football to golf to democracy itself. As such, the amazing thing about Abu Dhabi being hit with these 115 charges spanning f 14 years is that the Premier League somehow found within itself the sheer impertinence to challenge these true rulers of the universe on anything. And that is one of the reasons why there is such a shock at this. Yeah. Because, and I don't think it jeopardises the Premier League to say they might lose these titles. I think it's imperative that they lose the titles. Um, but you also see the fact that when, and Declan mentions this as well, that when Jurgen Klopp came out and said that there are th three teams who can do what they want financially. And he said, that's fine. That's, they're not breaking any laws, but there are three teams who can do it. Uh, and he mentioned them. You know, there was a private suggestion from Manchester City that Klopp was being xenophobic, which he was f rightly furious about. Yeah. But again, the, the waters are muddied so much. And we talk about Manchester City fans. The waters are muddied so much by... The, the responses to these things that everything and we know how this will end up in a in an argument and counter argument an online debate and Declan makes the point and I, you, if you even mention this I imagine this will lead to a, a, quite a counter response online he says I don't know any fans of Manchester City now I know a couple but I don't there is something interesting his point is that they haven't seemed to have there's something charmless, charmless, charmlessness of the Abu Dhabi sports watching project has sort of somehow denied people or led to people not being interested. And I asked, now this is very unscientific, yeah. but I asked my, my eight-year-old son yeah. the other day, Does any of, do any of his friends support Manchester City? No. That's interesting. Yeah. Now you mentioned one guy, he said, but I don't think he actually does. He supports loads of clubs. Yeah. 
but it, none of us and there's Chelsea fans. Yeah. There's because I'm of uh, I'm I'm of the nineties where uh, we all either supported Man United or Liverpool, mm-hmm. and that was it. Haaland might change that. Haaland has changed that. Haaland is the one thing that's kind of changed that because he's such a phenomenon. Yeah, but then as uh, soon as he leaves, they'll follow yeah. Haaland at PSG or wherever he goes. Uh, we are out of time. Is there any last piece, Hugh, you want to direct people towards? We don't have time to get into it, but just uh, you should check it out. thought um, it's worth mentioning. Kerry FC piece. Was oh, yeah, Tommy Connell's piece. Yeah. Tommy's piece, yeah. Kerry FC are in the first uh, division. Just interesting, I didn't know yeah. anything about it. And, uh, they're playing against it's Cove in the next few days. They're the Cinder. They're, gonna, they're, they're having an open day today, so it's great to have. And Clean is a good piece Kerry. as well, I think, as well, about the, the challenge for third level GA, which Shane McGrath alludes to as well in, the, in a different context. Okay. Uh, fellas, thank you very much. I appreciate you both coming in. Dion Fanning from The Currency, Hugh Farley from The Mail. Thanks very much, lads. Thanks, Joe. OTB Sports Rugby. I just remember when Stephen Jones was stepping up to take it, I was there going, oh, we've got this. Had they given it to Gavin Henson, I would have been a lot more worried. Um, <laughs> Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now.